It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Good evening, my name is Michael McKay, and I am your host this evening for Registry Report Radio. Tonight we have a guest, his name is Daniel, and he is not a famous advocate or a doctor of psychology or a professor at Stanford. He is, quite simply, an everyman, someone who is currently going through the same trials and tribulations that many of us did when we were released from incarceration and trying to find our way back to society, to reintegrate, so to speak. And his name is Daniel, and Daniel has spent about two years incarcerated and a year in community corrections, and he is now on that quest for reintegration and rehabilitation, and that's why we're talking to him tonight. How are you today, Daniel? I'm doing good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. How's it going? I'm glad to have someone on who can relate not just in this particular way to the the trials that everyone goes through when they're released back into the community, but it's good to talk to someone whose recollections of this process are pretty raw and pretty recent. You just got released last year, is that correct? Yeah, I got out in late April and went right to work as a waiter when I bounced around between restaurants and then finally, for the first time actually, got fired by one when corporate ran a background check. In my county, thousand dollar fine put have you been convicted of a felony uh yes or no if you have that box on the application at first and this place did and ironically it was very close to the halfway house where i've been housed at and when i first got to the pre-release center halfway house they were going to hire me this restaurant was and then back down i figured after the background check because i disclosed everything but then this time around i didn't have anything on my resume and i did not check the yes or no box and they ignored it at first and i assume that was because either they knew or didn't care but then about, I'd been there four months, everything was going great, and then apparently corporate ran a background check after my birthday and kicked me to the road. So you are currently unemployed looking for work, is that right? I'm back to the restaurant gig. I mean, restaurant industry is fairly welcoming. I mean, corporate places, you have a harder time, but less corporate family-owned places. That's actually at pre-release center I was at. I managed to get a job as delivery cashier at a small-owned family restaurant where I was able to ride my time at the pre-release center out. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about how you got to this point in your life. A little bit of your background, if you would. Yeah, well, I'm a a Harvard grad. I spent a little time working at the National Security Agency, and I ended up doing a lot of writing and then coaching and substitute teaching. And through my time coaching, ended up meeting a teenage girl who I became way too close to. And then the fences happened. I was arrested, and I confessed everything and put myself at the mercy of the judicial system and got a seven-year sentence. And I served about three and a half years, all told. Wow, seven years. You spent a year in a halfway house, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, actually, it was kind of funny. The the sex offender thing really didn't 
bother me too much in prison. I'm a relatively big guy. I was a college athlete. And, you know, after I managed to carry myself the right way, I wasn't really hassled much. I actually started boxing on the tier I was on. One of the guys on the tier had a single cell. He was a head librarian, head of the more science guys. And me and him became buddies and did a bunch of boxing training in a cell. And after people saw that, no one messed with me. But then on the way out to the halfway house, pre release center, actually I was only able to go there because my judge gave me a modification. Because in the state prison system, they weren't ever going to put me as a sex offender in pre-release center that was attached to the prison I was at. So to get me in any kind of pre-release center at all, my judge had to give me a fresh sentence. So I showed up at the jail expecting to get to the halfway house very quickly. But when I got to the jail, I met the case manager, I guess, from the pre-release center. Then I was told for the first time that as a sex offender, I'd have to do half of my sentence. And I explained, you know, I've served two and a half years. I have about a year left. I've served well over half my effective sentence. What is going on? But they dragged their feet. There was a whole bunch of letters that went back and forth. Anyway, I finally ended the pre-release center about four months after I was told I would. And I found out later I was the first person they'd applied that rule to. I was a sex offender with a victim as opposed to someone involved with the Internet or something like that. So they pulled the rule out of thin air to try to keep me out. But I was eventually able to get in there. It just kind of reinforces that notion that they're making it up as they go along, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my judge was really with the pre-release center. And my understanding is that he had never heard of this half your time rule. No one had. And when I talked to the counselor or the case manager screaming, I was told I'd be able to have a car. I'd be able to use the, have a job involving the Internet. I mean, as a college grad, most meaningful jobs involve the Internet, at least to check email in some capacity. But then when I got there, the tune was changed and I was told no access to a car, no access to the Internet. And basically, it was going to be some kind of manual menial labor. And so that's, you know, I ended up being a delivery cashier, which isn't the end of the world, but didn't really help me reenter necessarily, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Aside from those limitations, your halfway house, how would you characterize it? It was very strange to me in that I spent most of my prison sentence, like the last two thirds, in open housing, which is something some prisons have where after three to six months of good behavior, you're able to move into a building where you have a key to your room. And you still have to walk in for count and overnight and actually have toilets and bathrooms and showers and sinks outside of your cell. So that's really a nice perk as well. It's most times you're kind of pooping right there with your cellmate in the vast majority of prison cells. So in open housing, there was a rule. You couldn't be a raging asshole. You know, you had to behave to some extent. I mean, there was still tattooing here and there. There were still drugs here and there, but not much. And there was some amount of expectation of behavior. And if you misbehaved, eventually you got rolled out. You know, referring to the cart they used to literally roll your stuff out. The release center I was at, they didn't really care I mean, as long as you weren't actually fighting. I mean, one of the biggest ironies to me was, you know, I was told that I wasn't allowed access to a computer, even though my crime had nothing to do with the Internet whatsoever, more a computer. But they had computers at the pre-release center where you could access the Internet, but they were monitored. The thing was, they were only monitored in real time. Someone would sit there on a computer in the next office over, and they would kind of watch all the screens on one screen. But there was no logging of anything. There was no log. Everyone had the exact same login. The entire building had the exact same login. And so guys would get porn from their girlfriends, go on YouTube, watch videos, and they'd get locked out, and that was it. But for me, when I went on Wikipedia to check out one of my old uh, athletes' profiles, I coached a guy who won some gold medals. I was just bored and checking his Wikipedia page real quick, and I got written up for that. Whereas I'd seen guys been told, hey, quit looking at porn, quit turning rap video off, whatever. And they weren't actually ever written up for it. And in general, the pre-release center just let guys run around and yell and blast their music, and they just didn't care. It was just a very strange experience I sort of expected. I live in Montgomery County. It's one of the wealthier places in the country. 
I figured there of all places, there'd be a really nice program to really help guys reintegrate and they'd be reasonable. And then it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't terribly helpful. Have you found any programs that have been helpful to you since your release? Um, I mean, just the counseling I was in, found a, a counselor after my arrest, I bailed out, started therapy right away. And that was paid for by insurance and all that. It wasn't through the state whatsoever. As far as prison goes, most the only program I got in prison was going into a room with a handful of other guys I'd never met before. And then a case manager would put a VHS tape in the TV and press play and fall asleep. And we'd sit there and watch a video. And occasionally there'd be a little laughter or a few words here and there, but there was never any discussion or anything meaningful that happened. And after, you know, we'd show up for an hour once a week for six or eight weeks. And after that was over, then they'd give us a piece of paper certificate that was something your judge would see and all of that. That was it in prison. <laughs> Since your release, have you received any kind of assistance in finding work, housing, or rehabilitative efforts? My PO, after I recently got fired, I've really lucked out with my PO. He mentioned, you know, Home Depot is currently is really staffing up for the spring, you know, kind of casual, wasn't anything formal. But he's a, a good guy. There's a lot of guys, people in the system who understand how crazy the system is and don't want to give you a hard time. But all the same, through the state, there's been nothing. I mean, the day I was, I went home on, actually, the end of my stay at the PRC was the last sex offender thing, where I was technically eligible to go home on house arrest in January or February. But because, of course, as a sex offender, they didn't let me go home until my last, like, two and a half or three weeks. And so that was it. And they just kept on throwing barriers and rules in front of me. And my last day there, just I was at home on a GPS. I was at a GPS the entire time I was there. And my last morning, I just drove there. And they and actually, they gave me the scissors. I cut the thing off, and that was it. All right, good luck. See you later. So, no, since I've been released, the state hasn't done, haven't really heard of doing much for a lot of people, unless it's a pretty special program. Mm-hmm. Are you currently on probation? Yes, yeah. I got a five-year probation. Five years. That's better than a lot of folks who are put on probation for decades. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a lot of time with the registry, but, you know, it hasn't been too much of a problem for me so far. What goes through your mind now as you think back on what you've gone through, where you are right now? And you and I have spoken and you've expressed some desire to become an advocate of some sort in this area. What's what's going through your head right now? I mean, I was hoping to get into the academic side of things. I've got a pretty good college degree. And I had an encouragement from a friend who has gotten some advanced degrees after Harvard. And so I applied to College Park since it's the kind of only one in state. It's the closest to their PhD program and ended up not getting in. And for my initial meetings with professors, they apparently Googled me, saw the press reports, and first weren't too excited, but I met them and they seemed to really warm up. But one way or another, I didn't get in. So now I'm just kind of looking to reassess and try to figure out what the best angle is to come at fixing the system. Looking back at my time in prison, the biggest thing is the wasted opportunities. Uh, I mean, because prison tears you down. Uh, it's kind of the elements. I met a lot of military guys in there, a handful. And, you know, there's a sense of boot camp in there because it's miserable and it sucks. And you're getting fed and you, know, you can sleep for the most part sometimes, but it's jarring. You kind of, it's disassociating in a sense. And that opens you up to change. And what I saw in prison was most guys changing for the worse. It was just heartbreaking. I had students who I'd known. I spent 20 months in my prison special education classroom. So I saw guys grow up. I had 17-year-olds turning 18, you know, 18-year-olds turning 19-year-olds. And they weren't getting better. And they could have because they, they first came in and they're scared and they're worried and they're looking for friends and meaning. And my teacher was an absolute saint. But we're only in class for three hours a day. And if that. 
because it's prison. There's lockdowns and holidays and stuff gets in the way. But it's an opportunity for change and pretty much the vast majority of wasted opportunities. Right. My experience was almost identical to that. And it is pretty heartbreaking to see that not only are people not taking advantage of what few opportunities they have for change, but when they do, it's usually not for the better. So, yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. Given your situation right now where you're struggling to find work and and I assume you're in a decent place to live, but I'm sure you could also probably improve on that. You're struggling to further your education, to establish yourself and make the right connections and that sort of thing. How do you see your advocacy fitting into your struggle just to make it day by day? I mean, that's the thing. I was initially, it took me a long time to even create Twitter and Instagram and website to put up my prison writings because I was just so worried about getting outed. If you're successful at advocacy, people know who you are. You know, that's kind of the point of advocacy and reform is to be a voice. And if there's a voice, generally people have some idea where it's coming from. So to me, you know, D.C. area is small in a sense because it's relatively compact geographically and there aren't all that many. It's not like New York City. you got to blend in with lots of boroughs. I mean, D.C. is small. And so for me, I was, if I get really into advocacy, I get really good at it, then what if my boss finds out wherever I'm at and I get fired from whatever waitering job I have? So there's kind of a push-pull with people who, if you Google me, it's not flattering because the news can do what the news wants, and it is what it is. Sure. Your skills up to this point have been in writing and as an academic. Where do you think your skills will lead you from here on out? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I've, uh, the last couple of jobs I had before my arrest, actually, I left coaching and teaching before everything you know, hit the sand. Uh, I did some recruiting, and then it was at Northwestern Mutual at the time of my arrest. I mean, I've spent a lot of time researching where do you foresee yourself in five years? Hopefully working for some kind of advocacy group. I mean, luckily in the D.C. area, we have Georgetown here that's doing an enormous amount of outreach. I mean, surprisingly, in some sense, the D.C. jails are much more reasonable than the Maryland prison system or jail system because Georgetown's been going into D.C. for years now teaching classes and having guys do college credit. And there's voluntary classes. There's a lot of advocacy and outreach and that kind of thing in the D.C. area. And for me, the, the prison system is symptomatic of you know, the rest of the inequality in America. Sentences are too long. There's all kinds of criminal justice numbers that need to change. But at the same time, that alone isn't going to be enough. I mean, there's educational reform that's needed. There's social reform. Prison happens because of inequality. I mean, something that criminologists have been saying for 200 years. And so inequality is, comes from all kinds of things. I'm definitely interested in that's kind of my specialty in some sense because I've you know lived through it. But at the same time, having been in that classroom and talked to these guys and heard about the families and the schools they were from, you know, it becomes very obvious very quickly that there's a lot of ways to help the prison system and help change it without necessarily changing mandatory minimums or something direct like that. Are you interested in working with established organizations or are you looking to do some organizing yourself? Either way. Both. I mean, there's so many. It's, it's, I've you know, only gone to a couple events in D.C. recently. After I was fired and I got rejected from grad school, I sort of just figured, the heck with it. I might as well start going to these events and meeting some people, networking. And there's an enormous number of people who are all working to try to do this. And there's not necessarily a lot of communication between them because it's like the old saying with a bunch of blind guys on the elephant. They're all I'm not, I'm not sure if the blind guys are talking because it is an elephant. And there's all kinds of ways to come at criminal justice reform. There's no one right answer, no one solution. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'd go either way. What are the most valuable lessons learned that you would offer someone who's just about to start what you've been going through for the past year or so? Oh, man. 
when people get to know you as an individual, they're shockingly reasonable. I was convinced housing would be impossible. I was just so worried. I had no idea what I was going to do, but went on Craigslist and the first place I came to, I met the, the woman who lives here. There's a big fenced in yog for my, for my dog. You know, I met her and we chatted and not too long into it, I explained, you know, I got into my story and she'd been a teacher and she understood the dynamic and she opened her home to me, you know, for rent, but still. It's been surprising when people actually meet you and you're not just your offense or a number or a sex offender. People sit down with you and talk to you. I've found them to be really receptive, which has been nice. Yeah. It's a great lesson for a lot of folks. I know that while I was incarcerated, I wasn't the only one. A lot of us talked extensively about the fear of what we would face on the outside. How do we explain ourselves? How do we get a place to live? How would we ever get a job? We just assume that people are going to be total jerks. And in fact, sometimes people are. But I think in general, once someone gets to know you as an individual and can see past the label, it becomes easier. Yeah. And to me that kind of to me that's, you know, analogous to our what's wrong with our criminal justice system where we just take people and categorize them by age or by offense or you know, mostly by offense. And you see you're lumped with your offense and then that's it. That tells your story and you're treated to five years, ten years, whatever. As opposed to the judge actually saying, Okay, let me find out about this guy. We're about to spend forty ish K a year putting you in prison before we put a cap on that and decide how many tens of or hundreds of thousands of dollars even the state's going to spend on you, maybe on the front end, spend some money on actually going and interviewing your teachers and your family and your friends. And there's any number of psychiatric things, other medical testing. And it's just the fact that the criminal justice system seems very intent on not treating people like individuals. Until that happens, I don't see real change ever happening. So tell the folks how they can reach you if they want to learn more about you or to contact you. The best place is the website, uh, www.harvardtothebighouse.com. So my writings are up there, and you can find my social media on there as well. Super. I want to thank you for being my guest today, Daniel. We enjoyed, I enjoyed talking with you. I think that you have a lot to offer anyone who's about to face the same sort of tribulations that you're going through right now, and I appreciate you being with me. Thanks so much for having me on, Michael. Take care. You too. That was Daniel, harvardtothebighouse.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at harvardtothebighouse2 is a digit, not the word T-O, Harvard, digit to the big house. And you've been listening to Registry Report Radio. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.